This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, ahead of Armistice Day, we learn about the role of one particular country house during the Great War. Ron writes to a relative to say that he thinks that these are possibly the first convalescents to actually come to a country house after leaving hospital. So there's a strong possibility that Rest was maybe the first country house to be used as a hospital during the First World War. We'll hear how Rest Park went from a family home to a military hospital. Cases of people with shrapnel wounds, blast injuries or bullet wounds in limbs. So there's quite serious injuries and these people are coming straight from the front line. And we'll discover how the property now provides a beautiful backdrop for couples in love. Dr Andrew Han is our guest this week, covering love, war and everything in between. But before we speak to him, just a quick reminder that you can subscribe to get new episodes of the English Heritage Podcast every Thursday. Now this week, as we move towards Armistice Day, we're unlocking the World War I stories held within the walls of an English country house and grounds. Rest Park is an estate sitting within 90 acres of gardens in the county of Bedfordshire, about 45 miles north of London. But this grand French-style residence hasn't always been an aristocratic home for the well-heeled. Rest Park has also been a place of convalescence for soldiers injured on the battlefields of World War I. Joining us to chart its history is Dr Andrew Han, who leads English Heritage's team of property historians. Andrew, thanks for being with us on the podcast. It's lovely to be here again. Now, before we get into how Rest Park went from a country house to a convalescent home and a military hospital, first tell us, when was it built? Well, Rest House was built between 1833 and 38 by the owner himself, Thomas II Earl de Grey. He was a well-known amateur architect and... He designed and built the house himself, but it was replacing a much earlier house, which dated back to medieval times from when the the family, the de Grey family, first came to rest, which was as far back as the late 13th century. And he moved in in 1833 and immediately started work on demolishing the old house. Demolition was virtually complete by 1834, and then he started building this new house, which was completed in 1838, and then he moved in with his family then. So it was it, it was a relatively modern house when we're thinking about it. It was, a, it was an early 19th century house that was used as the hospital. Why did he, um, out of interest, demolish what was there before in order to build a, a brand new home? It was a real mixture of different styles. It, you know, the windows leaked. It was it was a real sort of mishmash of different bits that had been built over this many centuries. And some bits were medieval, other bits were Tudor. There was a Georgian front on one side, and he just felt that it didn't have any sort of coherence to it. And he wanted to build something which was more pleasing to his architectural eyes. And and so he created something that was really like a French chateau in the English countryside. It was one of the few houses built in the French style. And it really uh, did, as he felt, harmonise with the formal gardens, which he saw as having a sort of French style to them, which were were already there. So he saw it as sort of creating a house in in sort of unity with its garden setting. 
It's a real shame that the, the old one went down in a way, because obviously if English heritage was there at the time, it would have uh, probably intervened in, in that destruction. No doubt it would, yes. It would have been a fantastic uh, house to investigate for sort of, you know, the architectural historians amongst us who would have you know been able to sort of look at the different elements of it from uh, a huge number of different architectural styles and periods. And, and it would have been a real sort of detective work to uncouple how it had been built up over the years. So, yeah, it's a, it was a very different beast from the new rest house which is all built in a single phase so we've established that uh, rest house is a very grand property in a french style with very beautiful ornate gardens within a very large estate but how is this grand property being used in the run-up to the outbreak of world war one well, really, it had quite a chequered history in the 20th century. Until 1905, Rest had been almost the second or perhaps even the third home of the Cooper family, Earl Cooper, whose main country house was at Pansanger in Hertfordshire. And he had at least three country houses, if not more. And so it was only really used at weekends and for occasional house parties when uh, uh, Earl Cooper and his group Social Circle, who were known as the Souls, came over and entertained there. But then when he died in 1905, the estate passed to Oberon Herbert, his nephew, who became then the 8th Baron Lucas. And he already had a house in the New Forest and then also a London property. And so he really didn't have much use for rest. And so he rented it out almost immediately to the American ambassador, Whitelaw Reed, to use as a sort of country retreat from his uh, ambassadorial duties where he could entertain visitors and guests. And... It continued in use as such uh, as a as an ambassadorial residence then right through until Whitelaw Reed's death in December of 1912. And after that, really, the house was just left empty for a couple of years up until the outbreak of World War One. It was just being maintained with a skeleton staff of servants led by the housekeeper, Hannah McKenzie, who had been kept on after Whitelaw Reed died. But really, there was nobody else there. That's a familiar story, isn't it? I think that's quite reminiscent of what happens at Brodsworth Hall as well, near Doncaster, that you sort of have these country houses gradually falling into decline and places where you almost rent it out as an Airbnb sort of thing, or as you say in this case, uh, as an ambassadorial retreat. Yes, I mean, in some ways it, it had a, you know, quite a sort of um, illustrious uh, life as an ambassadorial residence. They had a, a visit from Edward VII and they also had people like the Vanderbilts coming over and President Roosevelt, before he became president, came over. So, I mean, there were, there were a number of, you know, distinguished guests that came over during its life as, a, as a, an ambassadorial residence. But after that, after 1912, it really did become a bit of a sleepy backwater and the owner, Oberon Herbert, who was always known as Bron by his family. So Bron and his sister Nan used to come over occasionally with a couple of servants and a picnic basket and just sort of spend the night there. But it really wasn't being used at all. It was just sitting empty. And so when war broke out, it was an obvious thing to do to offer it up for war use because it was a bit of a sort of white elephant, really. Was there a strong uh, urge on an impulse on behalf of Bronn to want to help the war effort? I think the majority of the aristocracy were very keen to sort of be seen to be doing their bit for the war effort. You know, it, it was they wanted to show everybody was in 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 it together, and perhaps Bronn more than more than most because he was very radical liberal and he really did believe in sort of the aristocracy should be mucking in with the common man, and and he really felt 
in a way, some ways slightly embarrassed to have such riches when other people had a lot less. So I think really it wasn't much of a a jump for him to decide that he was going to offer up his house for use as well. He initially offered it for use as a, a hospital for, for naval ratings. And then when Churchill said it wasn't needed for such, then they decided that they would open it as a, a convalescent home. You mentioned Winston Churchill there. Obviously, we're talking World War One here. So how old was he at this point and what role did he have? Well, I understand that he was First Lord of the Admiralty at the time. So he was responsible for the Navy. And uh, he was also a close friend of Brom because they both served as government ministers. Brom was serving in the Liberal government as the Minister of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food at the time. So they were fellow parliamentarians and government ministers. So it was very easy for Bron just to write a letter to Churchill offering up rest for hospital use. And then when it turned out not to be needed for naval ratings, it was someone else within government who suggested that it would be uh, an ideal place to place convalescents, people who had been patched up but just needed to recover a bit more from their wounds before they would be fit again to return to the front line. When do the first troops start arriving and, and what sort of problems do the troops have? Because... Presumably they are just recovering from previous operations and they're just sort of there to sort of generally recuperate, is that right? Basically, when war's declared, Bron offers offers the house up to Winston Churchill pretty much the day that war's declared. And then there's a, a period of two weeks when his sister Nan takes charge of preparing the house to become a, a hospital or convalescent home. And they have to clear all the rooms of all the furniture. They had to cover over all the fine wall uh, decorations and all the tapestries and so forth and the paintings and uh, also bring in electric uh, electricity because there's no electric supply in the house so they had to run up a rudimentary electric lighting system and all that sort of thing and while this is being done the war is sort of gathering pace out in France and they, you have the first battle involving British troops which is the Battle of Mons which happens on the 23rd of August and when that happens the first troops start to come back to Britain for hospital treatment and it's, uh, I think, on the 7th of September that rest gets its first consignment of convalescents. And these are 66 patients from the London hospital who've been patched up. And uh, Bron writes to a relative to say that he thinks that these are possibly the first convalescents to actually come to a country house after leaving hospital. And that he, he believes they'll probably be the first to be patched up and then return to the front line. So there's a strong possibility that rest was maybe the first country house to be used as a hospital during the First World War. And how many of these convalescents did the house look after over its a lifetime in the First World War. Do we have figures? Well, Rest only only served as a convalescent home for a relatively short time, only really for a month. You had the 66 convalescents that came in, and as they gradually got better, they moved on. And then the house closed down. It was only then in late November that it reopened as an auxiliary hospital. That's a hospital taking troops directly from the front line. And in that role, it looked after, we estimate, around 1,600 patients over the course of the war. And there were at any one time, there were between 150 and 200 patients, depending on how full they were. They had officially uh, an official capacity of 150 in terms of the number of beds they had. So it's almost as if as the fighting becomes more intense, that numbers increase and the need for the house to become something a bit more than just a convalescent home it becomes quite necessary. It has to become a hospital. Exactly. I mean, as the war progresses, the number of casualties coming back from the front line escalated hugely. And 
the need for hospital provision became very clear. The hospitals that were available, the War Office had at its disposal, quickly proved inadequate and it was quite clear they needed a lot more hospital beds. And so quite a number of other country houses and other public buildings then were turned over to hospital use. And actually in the course of the war, there were as many as 1,484 auxiliary hospitals set up across the country, of which rest was one of the first. And these were all offering, uh, you know, sort of, provision for patients being brought directly from the front line. There was a system whereby they were brought over by hospital ship to usually to Southampton and then the railway network then distributed them on hospital trains all around the country to these various different hospitals where they were then unloaded, put into ambulances and taken to the various hospitals uh, of which rest was, was one of the first. That is a vast number of auxiliary hospitals if you think about it. I mean, if you think about that happening today... Yeah, I mean, and they were all set up in a really short period of time. I mean, they were offering, you know, probably 200,000 or more hospital beds in this period. And on top of that, you've got a huge number of smaller houses used as convalescent homes that are dotted around the country, around each of these hospitals. So you've got a massive network of provision that's being set up in a relatively short space of time. And most of it's being run through the auspices of the Red Cross and the Order of St John of Jerusalem, who are providing all the temporary auxiliary nurses often through the um, voluntary aid detachments so that these are women often middle-class women who've got limited nursing training who are being brought in and trained upon the job and are sort of doing the job of nursing or all these uh, soldiers back to health how many nurses did they have working at rest then well we think between about 15 and 20 at any one time it's difficult to tell i mean you often go on the basis of like there's a number of group photographs and if you still count the number of nurses in those it's usually around sort of 15 but nurses there was a quite a sort of through flow of nurses that you know nurses came and went some of them because uh, they were dismissed i mean it was nan herbert's bronze sister who managed and ran the hospital and she was involved in recruiting the nurses and she writes in her diary quite often that some of the nurses were dismissed because they were drunk or they were inattentive or they were were more interested in chatting with the patients than treating them so there was quite a through flow of people because some of them just proved to be unsuitable or decided nursing wasn't for them or they wanted to go out to the front line in, in France and Flanders and so others came in to replace them. Apart from the nurses we had I presume surgeons doing operations there and which room would have been the operating theatre? Well, we know that the operating theatre was, it was in a bedroom or bedroom suite, which is in the bow-fronted windowed room, which is facing north over the entrance front of the house. It's on the north front of the house on the first floor. And we got a photograph showing the operating theatre in there. And you can see how they've basically put down floor covering and they've got the operating table there and all the sort of medicine cabinet behind it. And there's two nurses in there in the photograph. But we know that, yeah, they did a whole series of operations in there. They had an X-ray room next door and they had the surgeon's office on the other side. So all the sort of rooms associated with surgery were were in that area of the first floor and we know that they did a number of operations there because um, Nan in her diary she actually trained up to be a nurse and actually served in the operating theatre there working alongside the other nurses and she mentions you know an operation to amputate a man's arm where he'd got gas gangrene and there's other cases of people with shrapnel wounds or blast injuries or uh, bullet wounds in limbs or whatever so there's quite serious injuries and these people are coming straight from the front line they're literally being brought into a casualty clearing station in France loaded onto a, a hospital ship brought to England 
put into a, a hospital train and then sent straight up to rest. And they've still got the uniform on which they were injured in. So they're covered in dirt and dried blood and often lice and whatever. So they're in quite a state when they arrive. So it's not surprising that there's some quite serious operations that need to be done in the hospital. Absolutely. It sounds actually almost as if Nan and any of the surgeons or nurses working at rests were almost on the front line themselves in a way. Pretty much so, yeah. I mean, they would have they would have had nurses on the hospital trains with them to make sure that you know patients weren't dying on the journey up there. I mean, some some did, but when they got to rest, yeah, they would have been taken straight to a delousing room and they would have been stripped off as far as was possible with their injuries and and washed to try and get them clean. And then they would be taken up to the bedrooms, put into bed and then assessed by a doctor and to see, you know, what treatment was needed, how quickly they needed to be treated. You know, for some of them, it really was they needed to be treated straight away. Then there was was a house surgeon, but there was also a number of other surgeons they could call upon in London to come up to do operations at rest. And so they they had a you know a fairly efficient system of processing these various patients as they came in because they had they had to because they were getting maybe fifty to a hundred patients would come in on a hospital train and they would arrive you know maybe early evening on the hospital train and they had to be processed that evening so they'd be ready for surgery the next day if necessary. It must have been quite a shock then for people who aren't used to dealing with these sort of horrific injuries. You know, you're at home in England, you know there's a war on, but then suddenly all these, the reality of war is right in your hands. I suspect so. I mean, most of these women were not professional nurses. I mean, there was one or two who'd been nurses in their previous life, but most of them were women who, you know, some of them were housewives, some of them were the daughters of aristocrats, like Nan herself. Some of them were shopkeepers' wives or whatever. They were mostly... You know, women from a middle class background probably have fairly sheltered lives, yeah, who wouldn't know have experienced anything like this before. And they were thrown together with men who were primarily working class squaddies. You know, it was mainly all the soldiers who were treated at rest were all from the ranks. And Brom was very clear he didn't want officers to be treated there, only ordinary soldiers. And so they were mainly men coming from completely different backgrounds who would probably have lived in a inner city in many cases. We have some examples of one soldier we know of who was from inner city Sheffield, and they would probably never have experienced a big country estate like this before. So that would have been a shock to them, as well as obviously the, the injuries they were they were dealing with and coming into contact with people they would never really have been in contact with before. So what was daily life like? I mean, we know we have the diary entries from, from Nan. What sort of would have happened on, on a typical day? Well, we know that Nan kept, as well as keeping a diary, she compiled a scrapbook, which is still kept by the family. And, and this sort of includes things like a, a rotor, a daily rotor for a nurse. And you can see that there's two shifts of nurses. So there's one that effectively covers the nights and then clocks off around eight in the morning. And there's another shift then which starts at eight and goes on till sort of seven or eight in the evening. And then they then they swap over. And it's pretty much a, a rotor of, you know, the nurses get up, have their breakfast, then they go in and deal with the patients, putting new dressings on, checking dressings, getting people ready for surgery who need it. And then there's the patient's lunches and then the nurse's lunches. And then, you know, it's a, it's a sort of daily routine, really, in the hospital, which is punctuated by these periods of great activity when a new trainload of patients arrives. So you'll tend to have sort of bit of a pulse in activity where you'll start off with a, a new train load of patients will arrive then they'll gradually be treated and as they get better they'll become sort of walking wounded and they'll be able to sort of go out and convalesce and uh, you know sit on the uh, on the terrace 
to enjoy the sun under a canopy or go and play in the grounds. You know, there's pictures of some of them doing things like playing football or um, going fishing and things like that. So as they convalesced and got better, they were able to, you know, get involved in sporting activities and enjoying the grounds. And then once enough patients had recovered, they would then move on and then a new set of patients would arrive. So it was a whole sort of like, you know, a sort of uh, a sequence of... Um, frantic activity as a new set of patients arrive and then as they started to recover it it, it became easier and there was more time for sort of entertainment and and uh, and socializing although there was nan was very clear that the nurses shouldn't socialize too closely with the patients because obviously you had to keep that professional distance how did these soldiers once they'd gone through the trauma of perhaps an operation and then the eventual convalescence how did they keep their spirits up especially if they have life-changing injuries well, we know that Nam was very keen that there was lots of sort of leisure activities and social activities going on to sort of keep up morale. And she was helped in this by uh, a close friend of hers, J.M. Barry, the playwright, who was sort of like the cheerleader in chief for the for the hospital. And he would come along regularly and he'd bring down, you know, sort of entertainments and things to entertain the troops. So in one case, he... he Bron had given him some fishing rods to bring back, which he could then do a sort of fishing competition for some of the convalescents. And he also had trophies made, which could be then competed over. So there was a trophy for billiards so that the various uh, soldiers could compete in a billiard competition and he would present the successful one with a trophy. So there was lots of entertainment going on. Of course, you've got the grounds at rest, which are ideal for all sorts of sport, whether that's football, tennis theatricals that were put on in the Great Hall. We got lots of photographs showing convalescents dressed up in uh, costume, one dressed up as Charlie Chaplin, another dressed up as a, a maid, and, and this sort of thing. And then we had some pictures of soldiers dressed up as nurses as well. There was some dressed up in nurses' uniforms. So there's quite a lot of, should we say, hijinks going on. And, and, and there's, there's one reference in Nan's diary to one particular nurse who set up a, a game on the ward for patients that were still in bed and she called it something like shooting the Dardanelles and this involved all the patients in their beds throwing their pillows and cushions at soldiers who were in wheelchairs trying to race down the ward on their wheelchairs and being pelted with cushions and pillows <laughs> uh, so it sounded like quite a lot of um, you know sort of entertainments and, and sort of ribaldry going on in the in the hospital it wasn't all doom and gloom certainly I suppose it's thanks to Nan and her diaries and scrapbook and photographs that were able to know what went on at Rest Park. I suppose as a historian, you're quite grateful for that record. I'm extremely grateful. I mean, it's it's an amazing source that gives you not just the sort of dry figures for how many patients were processed and what their wounds were, but you get a real feel for what it would have been like to be there during the the, the war years. And, you know, that you get a personal account of, of Nan in terms of her experience of being a nurse there and then being matron. She was finally became matron after a, a small while. And the different sort of relationships and tensions between the different staff, between the doctors and nurses and between the, between Nan and the housekeeper, Hannah McKenzie. But there was lots of sort of like culture clashes going on, as well as this real desire from everyone to sort of really pull together and, and make the hospital work. What role does the house then have through the rest of the war after the start of the war in 14 and then through into 1918? Well, what happened was that, sadly... In 1916, in September of 1916, there was a serious fire in the house. It was caused by a, a chimney catching fire. It was just 
the beginning of autumn and they'd started putting lighting fires again after a break over the summer and this chimney hadn't been swept properly and it led to a chimney fire which then spread along the attic story and burnt out the attic story and they managed to save the house from complete destruction but it did mean that it really wasn't feasible to operate it as a hospital any longer because the wards had all been badly damaged by water, there was charring, the whole of the nurses' uniforms and all of their possessions had been destroyed in the upper storey. And so it was sadly decided that they would have to close the hospital. What happened then was that the site was used for a while by the Royal Engineers who did training in the grounds. They pitched tents in the grounds and, and, and used the house for a short while. But then, very sadly, Bron, who had joined the Royal Flying Corps, he'd left his job in government in 1915. He joined the Royal Flying Corps. Well, he was shot down and killed in November of 1916. And... That was only, you know, a couple of months after the fire. And so Nan was left now as the, the new ninth Baroness Lucas. She was now owner of the house. And she had come to an agreement with Brom before he died that she would sell the house. And so the house was put up for sale in early 1917. And it finally sold in September of 1917 to a northern industrialist called John George Murray, who then moved in and all the contents of the house, all the fine possessions were all sold off and John Murray moved in, really ending 650 years of, of association with the de Grey family there. So it was really the end of an era. But in a way, you know, if this if it hadn't happened, we might not be looking after rest today. So there's always a sort of silver lining, I suppose. At what stage does English Heritage take possession and begin looking after the property? What happens to John Murray? I suspect he was suffering in the depression from his business interests and he had less money and so he decides he wants to dispose of Rest Park by the early 1930s. He buys himself a smaller estate in Hertfordshire and the house is being neglected. Murray isn't really spending much time there. The The house is being left pretty much empty a lot of the time. He's just coming down for occasional shoots at weekends during the 1930s and eventually in 1939 he finds a buyer for the house in the form of the Sun Insurance Company, who are looking for a country headquarters to relocate to from London during the uh, Second World War. They're worried that their headquarters in London may be bombed, and so they want to move their staff out to the countryside. The house is really turned over and becomes a sort of a, a glorified office, really, during the Second World War. And it stays with the Sun Insurance Company until the end of the war, and then it's purchased by the Ministry of Works in 1946, to be used as a base for the Centre for Agricultural Engineering, the National Institute of Agricultural Engineering, which is looking for a new base right through from 1946 through to 2006. And it's when they move out that English Heritage takes ownership of the site and starts its project of restoration of both the house and gardens to try and restore them to their former glory. So it's really only been since 2006 that English Heritage has had a a major role there. Rest Park now obviously has romantic connections, which is quite nice. It sort of almost brings war and conflict full circle. What um, role does it have these days? Well, I mean, these days, um, rest, as well as being a a visitor attraction, is also used as a a venue for weddings. And many couples have had their nuptials there in the the past 10 years or so. It's a perfect, uh, you know, sort of environment for that. You know, they've got the the lovely backdrops of the gardens and the reception rooms, which Elder Grey created, form this lovely enfilade of rooms 
from the dining room to the drawing room, which are ideal for as a wedding venue. So it's yeah, it's it's been very successful in that respect. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, sort of helps us to maintain the house by bringing in an income for the property. So, yes, it's it really has come full circle in that respect. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Rest Park, go to the English Heritage website where you can read more about the history of this spectacular estate. We're back next week. Until then, don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, share and give us a rating. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hello, this is Josie Long, here to tell you about Speaking With Shadows, a podcast series from English Heritage, presented by me. With the help of researchers and local community members, I'll bring you six stories from history that we should all be talking about. Subscribe to Speaking With Shadows, the podcast that listens to the people that history forgot and get every episode delivered to your podcast feed for free. I can't wait for you to hear this show.